Hello and welcome to the PLUS podcast. Mathematicians often talk about the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. The question is why mathematics is so incredibly good at describing the world around us. And it's not just that. Once someone has found an equation or some sort of other mathematical formalism to describe something, it often turns out that it's useful in many other situations too and even points the way to new hypotheses and new directions in science. So why is that? Why should maths, rather than any other construct or formalism, be so useful? Last week we met up with someone who has a rather extreme answer to this question. Max Tegmark, as a physicist at MIT in Boston, suggests that the universe is itself a mathematical structure. He has just published a book about it called Our Mathematical Universe and published by Alan Lane. So when I met him, I asked him what this book and its central idea about the mathematical universe are all about. I really want to encourage people to think big because we humans have again and again and again underestimated not only the size of our cosmos, discovering that everything we thought existed was just a small part of a grander structure, a planet, a solar system, a galaxy, a universe, and maybe even a hierarchy of parallel universes. But we've also repeatedly underestimated the power of our human minds to understand the cosmos. And I think it's a really interesting question why we've been able to figure so much out. Part of it, of course, is that we've found the human mind to just be much more remarkable than we thought. And to this day, the most complex and amazing object in the whole known universe is the human mind, of course. But I think there's more to it. We've discovered these two super powerful principles in science. Do experiments and try to model everything you measure in your experiments with math. And uh, why is that so useful? I think it's because nature contains all these mathematical clues in the form of patterns and regularities that we can capture with mathematical equations and use to predict our future and to develop new technologies to even improve our future. And that part's pretty uncontroversial, but where it gets really controversial is when you ask what to make of this. Some people think it means nothing in particular. Some people think math is just something we've invented to be useful. I explore the whole spectrum of possibilities in the book, including the opposite extreme, that it really means something very profound, that it means that nature is fundamentally mathematical, mm -hmm. that it's a mathematical structure, that it doesn't merely have some mathematical properties, but that it has only mathematical properties. But how properties. do we know? I mean, obviously, we do know quite a bit about the universe or the universes we live in, and maybe a surprising amount even. But how do you know that there's not lots, lots, lots more out there that we just can't pick up on because we haven't got the tools, the mental tools or the language for it? And so maybe we still only know a tiny, tiny part, and there's a lot of stuff out there that we will never be able to capture. So We've again and again discovered that there was more stuff to learn than we knew of, so I think that's very likely to happen again. We face today in cosmology many mysteries, We don't even know what 95% of the stuff of our universe is made out of. But again and again, when we've discovered new stuff, we've found again and again that it could be described by mathematics. And I think that is too profound uh, a fact to just brush aside as being obviously meaningless. You know, we discovered the planet Neptune with math. We discovered the radio wave with math. Peter Higgs predicted the Higgs boson with math. We've been able to summarize 
and we can now in principle calculate every single physical constant ever measured from just a list of 32 numbers. And I, I think that actually is telling us something quite, quite fundamental. If, uh, if this is incorrect, this idea that it's all math, then physics is ultimately going to be doomed because we're going to hit this roadblock when there will be no more of these mathematical clues in nature for us to find. But if I'm correct in this guess, then that's actually very good news for physics because there is no roadblock. And uh, our ultimate ability to figure things out is only going to be limited by our ability to do better experiments and by our imagination and, and creativity. And I think even though we obviously have to have open minds, we don't know whether it's all mathematical or not. I think it's a pretty good working hypothesis mm. that it is. Because, so what, yeah. Yeah, basically, because as you know, there's no better guarantee to fail in, with any enterprise in life than to have some principle from the get-go that says that what you're trying to do is impossible, so you don't try. Mm. So, what, so let's think about this idea that um, the universe itself is a mathematical structure. What do you mean by that? Can you describe it? Suppose that you were a character in Minecraft or, or some much more advanced video game where the graphics is really, really good and you don't think that you're in a game. You feel that you're bumping into these real objects and you can fall in love and get excited about stuff. And then you start studying more and more your physical world in this video game and eventually you start discovering, oh, wow, everything is made out of pixels and these things which I used to think were stuff are actually just described by a bunch of numbers you would undoubtedly be criticized by some friends saying, oh, come on, you're stupid. It's stuff, after all. You know, even, and even though we haven't established that it has any other properties than numbers, it must, because it's stuff. You know? But it, you as a human looking from outside this video game would see that actually all there was was numbers. And we're exactly in this situation in our world, where we look around us, it doesn't seem very mathematical at all. right? But everything we see here, all this stuff, is ultimately made out of elementary particles, like quarks and electrons and what properties does an electron have does it have a smell or a color or a texture no as far as we can tell the only properties the electron has are properties like minus one one half and one we physicists have come up with geeky names for these properties like electric charge and spin and lepton number but the electron doesn't care what we call it the properties are just numbers and uh, if everything in space, the electron and all the other elementary particles, have no properties except mathematical properties, what about space itself? What properties does it have? There's a property three, which again we have a fancy name for. We call it the dimensionality, but space doesn't care what we call it. The property is just a number. And uh, Einstein discovered that space also has other properties, topology and curvature which you, of course, recognize as, again, purely mathematical properties. So if you take seriously the idea that both space itself and all the stuff in space has no properties at all except mathematical properties, it starts to sound less insane, the idea that everything is purely yeah. mathematical. And it becomes exactly like what we talked about for this character living in the computer game who discovers that after careful scrutiny, his world has no properties at all at the low level other than but is there, a is there a difference between saying that um, something is, is inherently a mathematical structure or saying that it's accurately described by mathematics? So you could, ha you could have a mathematical structure that just is that, or you could have a thing where you have a direct one-to-one -one correspondence between your mathematical expressions and the properties of that thing. But is, does that mean it is mathematical? I mean, and to what extent is, it, is mathematics a description rather than a 
an inherent um, feature? That's a very interesting question, the distinction between the description and the described. And uh, it's the same distinction, which is also important, between the language of mathematics and the structure of mathematics. For example, Plato was really interested in figuring out how many different regular shapes known as platonic solids there are, and discovered rather than invented, you know, that there were five of them. He, he was free to invent whatever names he wanted. He could call them the tetrahedron, the cube, the octahedron, the dodecahedron, and the icosahedron, or he could have called them the schmetrahedron and the schmoob or whatever he wanted. The language he, we can invent and the symbols we use for the number five, which is the number of mm. corners on each face of the dodecahedron, we can make up. The Romans had a different symbol. That's the language. But the structure, we cannot invent. Plato could not just invent a sixth platonic solid. It doesn't exist. And um, in the same way, when mathematicians define what they mean by mathematical structures, you know, if you write a computer program, for example, to print out for you a list of all platonic solids or all finite groups or all mathematical structures for that matter, right? then the notation you use to describe them can be arbitrary, but, but the structures aren't. So mathematicians define the mathematical structure as that which is, is that which is described by all the equivalent descriptions. Mm, yeah. That way you strip away all this, the baggage. It's kind of like the planet Neptune when we discover it in the sky. We invent the name for it, and people have different equivalent names in different languages, and then we have dictionaries to the, translate back and forth. But the object Neptune, the structure that's out there, is that which is described by all of the different human words for mm -hmm. Neptune. So it basically, even mathematics itself, is, is it exists. the structures exist without, their, without names. You know, you don't need to give names to them. We happen to give names to them or symbols or something. But the structure exists, like the structure of a, of a cube or a dodecahedron. And then on top of that, you have a mathematical language to describe them. So in the same sense... Um, you're, well, you're, this is actually a, a wonderfully controversial question you're bringing up, which, as you know, mathematicians love to debate especially after they get a little bit drunk. you know, Some mathematicians believe that it's all just invented. Most of my math professor friends feel rather that they're discovering the structure. My uh, colleague at MIT, David Vogan, for example, has a big poster on the wall of his office with E8, this structure he spent about a decade of his career studying, and he would be pretty pissed off at me if I <laughs> suggested he just made exactly. that stuff up. Mm. He feels he's discovering it. Mm. I think most of people, I read a quote somewhere that said that um, most mathematicians in their working week from Monday to Friday, they'd be Platonists because it just feels like you're discovering stuff. And then on the weekend, when they get to think about it, maybe they'll change your mind. But the working, when you're working, you feel that you're discovering stuff rather than inventing it. So um, when I say yeah. that I think our universe is a mathematical structure, I mean that it is the kind of thing which mathematicians discover, not the kind of thing mm -hmm. that mathematicians invent. Mm -hmm. So returning to your book then, so who is it for? What kind of audience are you the book, aiming for? The book mm -hmm. is written for any intelligent and curious person who uh, wants to know stuff about these big questions but has not spent a bunch of time ever studying physics in school. Because I feel that many of the most subtle and difficult things to understand, actually, about a cosmos are not difficult because of a bunch of math, but philosophically difficult. They're just as difficult for us physicists as they are for, for any other person.
And what angles do you take then in your book to to investigate that question of the possibility that reality is a mathematical structure? What kind of different perspectives do you take? So I go on three different journeys in the book. The first one is an outward journey, asking the question, how big is everything? Looking at evidence, our solar system, our galaxy, our universe, and, and so on, big, getting bigger and bigger and bigger, talking about what we know and what we don't. The second quest is an inward journey, asking, what is everything ultimately made out of? And the third one is taking a step back, saying, okay, given all of this, what can we really say about the true nature of things? That's where we get into these fascinating questions about what math has, has to do with it all. And finally, at the end of the book, I bring it back home and ask, you know, what does this ultimately mean for, for us humans? About how, about how we live our everyday lives. And mm. So how long have you been working on it? And what give, gave you the idea for it? I've only worked on the book for the last three years, but I've been working on these questions for the past 23 years, basically, ever since I, I started my PhD in physics. I've been so fascinated by these questions. And it's been really, really exciting for me to actually finally have the opportunity to synthesize all of the ideas that I'm most excited about and everything I feel I've learned into some coherent whole that, that actually makes sense. I also happen to be a very visual learner who never feels I can understand anything if I can't see it. So I've spent much more time than I care to admit making a hundred different illustrations for this book of how I visualize these various things. And I also I've tried quite hard to share with people in this book the metaphors that I feel mm -hmm. are most helpful for, for understanding a lot of these things. And I hope that people who find math fascinating will enjoy this book because they'll see so many amazing new applications of math at so many different scales in our universe. In a sense, our universe looks more and more mathematical the more you zoom into the smallest scales. We already talked about elementary particles, for example, and same thing happens with quantum mechanics. It also starts looking more and more mathematical when you zoom out to the larger scales, start studying the structures of spaces and so on, which could just as well be chapters in math books. The place where it's hardest to notice the math, ironically, is here on the human scale, kind of right between the biggest and the smallest. Why is that? That's a fascinating question. Maybe... Maybe we're too close to the human scale, so we just we get swamped <laughs> by it. Maybe we don't see the, the forest for all the trees. Yeah. That's quite, that's quite possible. Also, of course, the reason we are able to be so complex is because we are much bigger than the atomic scale, so we're not affected by all the quantum randomness and so on, and because we're so much smaller than, than the cosmic scale. So uh, maybe that's the most uh, friendly yeah. and, and habitable scale of our universe, kind of midway in between. But also, I mean, if, when we're talking about very, very small scales or very, very large scales, um, I mean, in, in a sense, we have no choice but to use mathematics to describe them because we can't physically see them or experience them. So maybe, therefore, it's just a kind of bias effect that they appear very mathematical, but that's because the mathematical microscope or telescope is the only thing that we have to investigate them. Yeah, this is a perfectly respectable viewpoint that, <laughs> that a minority of my colleagues hold, namely that uh, the only reason math has turned out to be useful is because of a sort of selection bias that was the only, we only study the things which actually work. But I, I think um, it's pretty clear that there's more there to explain. Because if you just go back, you know, 500 years in time and look at the world, back then we could only explain really well how things moved. 
with math. Even in ancient Greece, Archimedes was pretty good at figuring out how to fire cannonballs and stuff like that, calculating parabolas and the like. And the question of, for example, how light behaved seemed totally beyond the reach of mathematics. Then we got Maxwell's equations, completely takes care of everything to do with light and radio waves, and we all have a cell phone in our pocket now. But to, to Maxwell, again, it would have seemed like the question of why your hand is soft but your fingernail is hard and it had nothing to do with math, right? Then came the Schrodinger equation of quantum mechanics, explaining all the properties of matter. Mm. And so again and again and again, when people dismissed math as you know, only being you know, some kind of lucky fluke, whatever turned out to be useful, it turned out that there was another huge clue there to be found, which took an even larger swath of our reality and mm. brought it into the tent, which could be you know, illuminated by, by mathematics. And uh, so it's very interesting to look at the things that remain, that we still do not understand well at all, like consciousness, for example, and ask, could that also one day become describable by mathematics or not? And to me, the most interesting point about this mathematical universe hypothesis is not that it's some kind of ultimate answer to stuff, it's that it's a research program. It suggests to me a very <coughs> op optimistic viewpoint that, hey, you know, let's, let's try all these other things too that some of our colleagues said we shouldn't. This recent conference on the physics of information that I was involved in organizing, we invited a bunch of neuroscientists there, like Giulio Tononi and Christoph Koch, mm -hmm. who are working on consciousness. And Christoph Koch joked that when he was a professor at Caltech, they warned him to not work on consciousness until after he had tenure, because mm. it was considered <laughs> you know, so obviously a losing proposition. <coughs> and I want to co combat that kind of pessimism mm. with my book, because I feel that we've really been the masters of underestimation, underestimating not only the size of our cosmos, which meant we underestimated the future potential for life, but we've really underestimated the power of our human minds to figure stuff out. And my advice is, if you're a young or not so young scientist, you know, wondering whether you should try something that your colleagues are telling you is probably impossible, my advice would be, yeah, try it. Make sure you do some other more mainstream stuff too, so that you can keep... <laughs> get your PhD. And get your PhD <laughs> or get your job. But we need to be courageous and take some risks sometimes as well. Because, again, there's no more surefire way of, of failing to understand things than convincing yourself from the outset that it's just impossible. And these guys, Koch and Tononi... Yeah, I was going to ask you, what do they say? What they have this fascinating theory that the subjective consciousness, the so-called hard problem, why do you feel loved, why do you feel the fragrance of a rose, the color red, that that also can be understood as mathematical shapes to do with the information processing done by the particles moving around in your brain. And we don't know yet whether this idea of theirs is going to turn out to be correct or not. They're doing some very amazing experiments right now on this. Yeah. If it, yeah, if it turns out to fail and we can somehow convince ourselves that that cannot be described ever with math, that rules out the whole mathematical universe hypothesis. Whereas if they succeed, then they will be following the same tradition that Maxwell did with his Maxwell equation and Schrodinger with a Schrodinger equation, showing that yet another fascinating aspect of reality was also describable by math. And I think that's, of course, a very happy outcome for anyone who loves math. And we'll be watching the mathematical development of neuroscience very closely. 
Let's end this podcast with a quote by the physicist Eugene Wigner, who coined the phrase unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. In his famous 1960 paper of the same name, he talks about the miracle of the appropriateness of the language of mathematics for the formulations of the laws of physics as a wonderful gift which we neither understand nor deserve. We should be grateful for it and hope that it will remain valid in future research and that it will extend, for better or for worse, to our pleasure, even though perhaps to our bufferment, to wide branches of learning. And you can find out about many of those branches of learning that mathematics has been applied to on PLUS magazine at plus.maths.org. My name is Marianne Freiberger. Thanks for listening and bye-bye.